1: Accessed entry 758.pr0819, certificate number 28197. Maraschino cherries. What's something you're good at that is totally useless?
0: Oh, oh gosh. Um, there's, a, I'm sure there's a lot of things. What did I answer? You answered. I can tie cherry stems uh, to my, my tongue. Oh, with my tongue and a, with a knot. Can you really I did do that? it. This guy was sitting. Uh,
2: You are uh, not an alcohol consumer, teetotaler, but you love hot fudge sundays.
1: What do you know this about me? I'm just guessing. Is it because I have this, I'm wearing this T-shirt with a picture of a big hot fudge sundae on it? It's a Lisa <laughs> Frank Trapper Keeper <laughs> I, special. I always assumed
2: that that was a sexual orientation code. <laughs> Uh, like I wearing do, a yellow handkerchief.
1: I do love ice cream. Yes. Had my had my, uh, what, I think sixth
2: birthday party at Farrell's. Oh, yes. Farrell's, a lot of futurelings won't remember Farrell's. A lot of presentlings don't remember Farrell's. <laughs> but it was an ice cream parlor where the waiters and waitresses dressed like ye olde time. They were in barber, all in barbershop quartets and snapped their suspenders. This was very popular in the 1970s in the United States that you would have ice cream <laughs> pervade. <purveyed laughs> you had only an ice cream if you were thinking about the 1920s. Yeah,
1: the 1920s was the look. Why is that? It would taste slightly less delicious if your ice cream was
2: came from any other time frame. One of the bitterest moments in my life was uh, in third grade. Uh, my teacher, in trying to convince us to, or in trying to incentivize us to get good grades, rather than give us grades on our assignments, he gave he allotted a certain amount of imaginary money. So if you got uh if you got a great grade on your homework assignment. It was worth 25 cents.
1: These were not real cents? This was Bitcoin or something? Well, then
2: you would keep a bank book, which is another thing a futureling won't know about, but you used to keep a little book that looked like a passport that had your bank account transactions like, printed in it.
1: Don't leave home without this very important (laughs) list of all
2: your checks. So you could keep a record of how much money was in the bank. And uh, so you kept a little bank book and you would write down the amounts of money you made with each assignment and tests were worth more. This guy invented this cryptocurrency. And then at the end of the month, each month, he would have a little auction where he would have toys and models and little trucks and dolls and so forth. And then the class would have an auction where kids would bid on stuff with the money they had in their bank books and you can take toys home. So this was, he was a, he was the only male teacher I had in all of elementary school. And the most pernicious capitalist. And he had, he really had this all thought out. Talk about an education theory, like he had (laughs) it figured out. And so all year long, we were engaged in this sort of, you know, mercantile capitalism. Well, I was the ace student in his class and I was very motivated by money. But every month. Kids are super materialistic, we I should say. really,
1: really in into In our time. This. And it, it makes sense. They have no actual means of income. Of, of course they value
2: this commodity that makes the world go round, but which they have no access to. Right, and which is very shiny and, and appealing <laughs> in every way. I aced everything. And I had the most money even after the first couple of weeks. But he had an auction the first month. I didn't bid on anything. And his auction the second month, I didn't bid on anything. And by the third month, he said, you know, you've got you've got a considerable savings now. What would the total be in US
1: dollars? Did you have 10 bucks or did you have like 6,000 fifth grade bucks? No,
2: I mean, you're making 25 cents at a time. This is 50 cents for this, 10 cents for that. So, you know, I had $15 or whatever. And uh, and he was like, you could pretty much buy every, all these toys are priced, you know, $1 or whatever. You could buy whatever you wanted. And I was like, no, thanks. I'm just interested in the money. And as the year wore on, I amassed a considerable amount of money in this fake bank account. And he kept trying to entice me to bid on things. He would get, you know, he'd quiz me about what kind of toys I wanted. He would get a big Sherman tank or whatever, a model that was pretty cool model. I wouldn't bid. and He's he, getting
1: worried. Like he, he you're going to overthrow his entire economic system. And at, so the,
2: so, oh, I guess about halfway through the year, he put this huge Panzer tank up on a shelf above the front of the class. It was you know, not big enough to ride, but it was a massive, massive, very cool tank. And he would say, that's not, that we're saving that for the end of the year auction. And he knew that I was fascinated by it, which I was. We got all the way to the end of the year. I had never bought a single thing. I had a massive amount of money, more than a hundred dollars in my bank book. And we had the big auction. He said to me beforehand, you could just outbid everybody on every toy. I didn't bid on a thing. We got to the Sherman tank. And my main competitor was a little girl who was like my best friend, who was also really smart, little tomboy. And she was she into tanks? She bid on the tank. Everyone's, you know, looking at me, staring at me, and I'm just sitting on my $120 or whatever. And she won the tank. And he came to me and was like, I don't, and what he never understood, what no one understood was I wanted $120. Did you think he was going to convert it to American dollars? Absolutely. And so at the end of the year, at, completely at a loss, he said, I'm taking you to Farrell's. <laughs> and the teacher of third grade across the hall took her star student, whom I knew to be a ding And they didn't even have money over there. That, so they were just, <laughs> she just picked her favorite student. That's a Soviet Russia over there. And the four of us went to Farrell's and I got the pig's trough. Which, as you know, is it's the, the twenty scoops thing. of ice cream or whatever. Couldn't it, eat it; made me sick. And then it was about a week and a half into summer vacation when I realized I wasn't going to get my hundred and twenty dollars. That I that the entire year had been a lie. You had somehow never asked him. What? Well, just I assumed you're paying it's, me money for these. You're calling them dollars. And I lost faith in education from then on. I never listened to it. I never trusted another teacher. And my mom says now, reflecting back, if she had known, she would have just given me $120. It it could have made everything so much easier throughout time. This is like
1: people who now decide, you know, if we had just
2: paid off all the slave owners, we could have avoided the whole shenanigans. If we had actually given the freed slaves 40 acres and a mule like we promised. But in this case, especially like if you tie money to work, which is what he was trying to do, you can't then renege on the money. You can't, you definitely can't make it fake money. Right. But, and and then turn it into like what I knew to be a $15 ice cream sundae. In his
1: defense, John, every other child in this class apparently figured it out except for you, the smart star student. They all wanted
2: little toys and candy which i was like so contemptuous of the
1: real winner here i think is the dingling from the other class i know who got a free ice cream sundae just because it would have been too creepy and against school rules for your teacher to take you to lunch by himself
2: that's right that's right you got to you know they they weren't expecting anything over there Anyway, as you recall, probably no. You probably only coveted a pig's trough. No one ever bought you one. I did not. I've never had a pig's trough. It had twenty scoops of ice cream and and at did least it have, was it banana based? Did it have bananas? There were bananas. There was every kind of sauce that was what made it gross, like pineapple sauce. Sure, you don't want all the sauces. You don't want. But it had and and all the different kinds of ice cream that you don't want. I mean, there, you didn't have. You, you couldn't pick three flavors. It, it just came with everything. Well, yeah, and it was it was nineteen seventy seven. So there wasn't like salt and basil ice cream or any of this abomination we live with now, but it was. There were still gross flavors. There were gross flavors, licorice and.
1: I'll never forget. I was in line uh, in the drive through of a, uh, like a milkshake place with my brother and we were all trying to decide what kind of milkshake we were getting. And he, for his whole life has been this, this guy whose personality is kind of based on grossing other people out with his culinary choices you know, like, what will you give me to drink this hot sauce? That, that kind of kid. <laughs> or like, hey, how long's that been on the floor? That kind of kid. <laughs> uh, uh. And so he's trying to think of something he could just wow us with that he will order in this milkshake line. And he hasn't decided. And finally the the voice is like, I'm not sure. And he hasn't figured it out. And he panics and blurts out, uh, pineapple marshmallow. <laughs> And he did. They made him a pineapple marshmallow shake Ugh. and he had to drink a pineapple marshmallow <laughs> shake and it was exactly as bad as your- Serves him right. But that's essentially the pig's trough yeah. bargain is you're going to get pine Mellow because it's one of everything.
2: But the, the the pig's trough was covered also with whipped cream and had no fewer than 15 maraschino cherries. So wow. it really was meant to wow you. And if you ate the whole thing, you got a- medal, like a certificate, a gold medal, a blue ribbon.
1: And would they sing Sweet Adeline for you? <laughs> Sweet <laughs> Adeline.
2: They didn't. Ba, no, ba, I'm, sure, I'm sure they did go like, hey, automobile, automobile. <laughs> but, uh, and I did manage to choke it down, you know, and I was miserable for the last 20 minutes of it, but I got the, you know, you finished the pigstruff certificate.
1: Uh, 15 maraschino cherries is, is a lot. Like that's really appealing to a child for whom every food item that has maraschino cherries comes with only one, you know, fam- famously we even have the metaphor of something that comes with a cherry on top, one special single little prize. Yes, uh, A can of fruit cocktail will have exactly one maraschino cherry engineered by the Del Monte gods, no more no less.
2: And the, ch- the maraschino cherry is the only cherry that, that fulfills the cherry on top promise.
1: Right. When you're a kid, you don't want an actual cherry. Like your platonic ideal of a cherry is one of these gross, gleaming, bright red candy things.
2: Right. Right. And sweet cherries and sour cherries being two very different concepts of cherry. Um, Sweet cherries, like sour cherries are the oldest cherries and sour cherries have been cultivated and beloved since ancient times.
1: So even though we didn't have sweet cherries yet, we were still eating these because we didn't know any better. Well, and sour cherries are great for for pie, for cooking, right? Isn't, but isn't it weird how you cook this stuff and the everything changes? Like, whatever the things are that are making a blueberry sour just go away. Yeah, and this, when you make this a blueberry sweetness pie,
2: this comes out. But you also put a ton of sugar in, right? But in cooking it, you do sh- sugarify.
1: Yeah, the, the, the sugar was, I guess, already there, but are being
2: hidden by other kinds of tannins and yeah, acids. astringent stuff that goes away the The other thing that that sour cherries are great for is making liquor um, and into ancient times it was recognized and I, and this is still true throughout europe and and throughout the world. People in rural places gather all their fruit that falls to the ground, all the kind of rotten fruit or fruit that you wouldn't eat, and they mash it all together and they make a they make liqueur plum liqueur or Cherry liqueur. Yeah, they still use cherries, right? uh,
1: Like Kirsch is is a sour cherry brandy of some kind, right? Absolutely.
2: Uh, There are many, many, many kinds of sour cherry brandy. As we'll see later, there's a company called Luxardo in Italy that has 22,000 cherry trees, the largest cherry orchard in Europe. Uh, And they make Sambuca and Amaretto and Grappa and Slivovitz, and these are all made from different fruits, but like their cherry production is, um, is a big part of their like, uh, what would you say? Brandy or liqueur, liqueur production. I thought you were going to say
1: a big part of their brand, but then you it's said it's a their- big
2: part of their brandy. It's part of their brand and their brandy.
1: I don't drink Kirsch, but I've, you know, I've had it as a flavoring in fondue cheese. Right. Uh, where it's used or like Black Forest cake, you know, uh, Mormons are weirdly better able to identify liqueurs than like actual wines or beers or something you would want to drink because they're largely used as flavoring and all kinds of stuff, all kinds of Mormon vices. Right. Desserts and whatnot.
2: And so, so putting a little liquor in a, in a tiramisu or something does not... Doesn't uh, set off the bells at the at the temple. There's no bells. <laughs> ding 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 ding. And so, then, a Mormon ate too much maraschino. It's like getting your pig's drop certificate. <laughs> they come out and sing "Sweet Adeline" to you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, the uh, I feel like there's this weird kind of uh, kayfabe or deception that kind of goes on. I don't know. Maybe it's for others who don't drink for religious reasons. Maybe this will happen in Muslim circles as well. I don't know. But often I would hear that, oh, it's okay to cook with this stuff. The alcohol boi- sure, boils out. Sure. And in fact, that is not the case. It does not. You would have to heat something for like eight hours to actually get the half life of the alcohol to go yeah, down. Alcohol but.
2: burns off. But even if you go to a, a tiki bar and have a, a cocktail where they set it on fire, it's still a drink. <laughs> it's not. Afterward, <laughs> it didn't turn into a soda pop. I mean, I'm also a teetotaler. And have to make this, um, and have been now for 24 years, but by, um, by avocation (laughs) and, uh, and I have to make this sort of deal with myself.
1: How strictly do you observe this with tiramisu or or a, or a cherry cordial chocolate or.
2: It really ends up being a question of how much alcohol heat is in the thing where I become uncomfortable rather than feeling like I'm going to get intoxicated.
1: And you can tell you're not looking at numbers on the box. No, if
2: I take a bite of something and I feel that like, oh, I go, well, I don't want to play around with this. And it's not, it's not after 24 years of not drinking. It's not that I feel like, oh, here we go. (laughs) Wow. You know, like, (laughs) like. Call me a cab, or or uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna end up by tomorrow buying a plane ticket spontaneously and w- wake up in Amaretto. Uh, but it, it is it is just a feeling of like I don't want that f- I don't want that feeling, that hot alcohol feeling. I have a little bottle of Marsala wine that I keep on the on the kitchen counter, and I put it in a lot of foods I'm cooking. You know, any kind of white sauce or whatever I put. Marsala in. Oh, it'll burn off, John. And I don't worry about it. It does add a little bit of flavor and I know how much I put in. So I'm not, it's not like some, something where it's half a bottle of brandy.
1: And let me ask you this as a, you know, let me ask 24 years ago, John, this like, uh, how does the, how do these cherry flavored brandies taste? Do they taste like cherry? Have you, have you drunk any of these?
2: The cherry brandies? No, they all taste like, I mean, they're like Suica or Slivovitz or, or grappa. They taste like Jet fuel, right, I mean the fact that they're made out of uh, of a fruit is incidental to their flavor.
1: Are you supposed to be able to detect the notes of peach or whatever but uh, anise you know,
2: I mean all these drinks all these liquors are just the sort of local liquor of a of a people, and their intention was to make the highest proof way to get messed up that they could. They weren't like, this is, the, oh, this is so delicious. Uh. This is the only <laughs> thing we
1: have in our valley that if you leave it yeah. sitting out for six weeks, will like get you messed up on the weekend. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And
3: even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com iheart or
2: use the promo code iheart at checkout i went i walked across romania one time during plum season and Several times along the way, I was recruited by some, you know, by the people of some small village as I was, as I was preparing to bed down, they were like, come help us gather plums. Come to Plumeranza. (laughs) And so I would go out and, and help, you know, it was all part of this sort of, I mean, their culture is extremely welcoming and also extremely extroverted. So my preference would have been to be in a bath in a hotel somewhere, but instead I was out gathering plums with. The people that I was hoping would let me sleep in their barn. Did you have to stomp anything with their stomping? No. What what we would do is gather all the plums on the ground. Which which as a like an American, I was sort of appalled by the number of flies that were on them. Right. And, you know, they were just like These rotting, sort of brown fruit, and right? mushy. We would grab them all and put them into big bags, and then take them and and they were left to sit and sort of rot, I guess, in um, in honestly in plastic bags before they were then sent through the whole process. And I wasn't there for the, for the mashing and the, and the distilling. I just was there for the collecting, but I saw what a, uh, what a big part of the local autumn, the gathering of this rotten plumage was. And then also everywhere you go in Romania, sometimes it's even difficult to find a pack of cigarettes, but you can always find Suica, the local Slivovitz, you know, the local plum Uh brandy.
1: It seems like it's also a big part of their culture to trick visitors into working for free.
2: Well, as, a, as someone who, um, who was hoping to sleep in their barn, I felt like it was fair, fair enough, right? Uh, and more often than not, a someone bus- would take me home. A business traveler is not really going to face the same problem. But the idea, it was often, and this is also true everywhere you go, like the Tsuika, the their drink is connected to their identity you know, this is their drink. It isn't Slivovitz or grappa, it's ours. And so it would be offered, it would be proffered everywhere you went as a kind of, as a welcome, as a like join me. Um, and the fact that I was teetotal and had to constantly explain like, I don't drink, it's not that I don't drink Suica, which I'm I sure know is great, is full of crushed up flies. It's not that, it <laughs> is that I don't Touch alcohol, and you know that depending on where you are in the world, that's received. They may not have that there. Yeah, sometimes they're like, "You don't what? (laughs) How how is that?" And and so you know, it was it was well. It certainly made for lively conversations. But this kind of and and Eastern Europe and uh, and the Balkans play a big role in our story because the the sour cherry in particular was a kind of thing that the Romans really embraced. So they were known to, back to Byzantium and cultivated, but the Romans found them there in the Middle East when they, you know, when they arrived and loved them and brought them back. Oh, they're not native them. to the Balkans or whatever. No, they were they were sort of, you know, the the Roman Empire acted as a disseminator and they brought sour cherries with them. Now, the difference between one of the one of the important differences between sour and sweet cherries is sweet cherries are a, are a, a kind of creation, right? They're, cherries are bread and bread, and, and there's a lot of cultivation of sweet cherries, which are delicate and are not true. If a, if a cherry falls from a sweet cherry tree and, and a, a new tree comes up from it, you're not going to get a sweet cherry. It'll just be a sour cherry It just reverts. It's like, it's just like. It's like the, my kids. <laughs> exactly. It's like the ur er dog. If you take a poodle in a Great Dane and, and made them for two generations, you get a coyote, basically. Um, so sour cherries most often are true to themselves. You, cherries will, you can just drop a sour cherry on the ground and it will grow a sour cherry. Um, in my in the yard of my former home, I had a a, a wonderful sweet cherry tree um, that I think was pretty definitely like a like a a royal anne cherry, which is kind of you know light uh, super sweet nice cherry. culinary cherry. Uh, but it volunteered a cherry in my neighbor's yard that was small, hard, bitter, sour cherries, and you could see they were related to one another, but. You know the sour one was just what it. I mean, it's just exactly like Caitlin reverted to its natural form, (laughs) a a disagreeable child with long bangs. Civilization (laughs) ends after one generation. (laughs) Rejects all of her parents' like norms.
1: No, she loves us. Yeah, I know. For now, for now.
2: Uh, But so the Romans spread this uh, spread sour cherries back throughout their Mediterranean Empire, and at this time in the the you know, the early 600s, 700s. The area in Dalmatia on the Croatian coast had a lot of the natural uh, fecundity and weather that was really um, ideal for growing cherries. And so it became, Dalmatia was an area that changed hands quite a bit, as we'll see in a minute. Um, But it was also a, a crossroads, right? This was an area where, the sure East meets West. East meets West, right? And so cherries became a big part of the culture.
1: And if you don't have the nice sweet ones, are they are they still just doing everything with these cherries and, and not knowing life could be better? Or do you pretty much only use these for making tarts and dumplings and brandy? I mean, people were were. Can you sit and pop sour cherries into your mouth? Yeah, if you don't know people, any better?
2: Were, people were working on sweetening cherries, but but there wasn't a, uh, I think in ancient times, people ate a lot of terrible things that they thought were great.
1: They would have just called them cherries. They right. didn't know they were sour cherries.
2: When we showed up in, in uh, when the Europeans showed up in the Americas and were introduced to maize, it was not in the form of Doritos corn chips. It was. Corn so has
1: gotten so much sweeter during our lifetimes. Yeah, right. Like the kind of corn we can buy in the store today, you know, that was, the only thing as sweet as that in 1976 was the. Jolly Ranchers in the next aisle. I mean, there's, corn's a totally different beast now because we're making our palettes. so.
2: And I think that's true of everything. I mean, and, and, and there have been thousands of variations of cherries throughout history and they've all just in very recent years been reduced down to, if you go to, if you go to buy a cherry at a nursery now, you've got a couple of options. There's three kinds. Right, you've got, uh, you've got Rainier and Royal Anne and, you know, uh, and And as we'll see, uh, Maraska, which is a kind of sour cherry that that was developed in this region, in the Croatian region. So the oldest inhabited city in all of the Balkans and in Croatia is a city by the name of Zadar, um, which alternately is called Zara. And I think it's Zadar, it may be Zadar, you're the one that is better at pronunciations. So, uh so Zadar is like this this very very old city where the cherries were in everyone's estimation where they grew the most perfectly, where they were the I mean although these are kind of sour cherries, they grew the most sweetly there in Zadar. Being the sweetest
1: sour cherry is not really that much of a distinction.
2: Well, it is if you're, you know, if you're making liquor or, you know, if you're using it, if it's the cherry you have, you know. You, we go to war with the cherry <laughs> we have, not the cherry we want. He's not the cherry we deserve
1: right now. He's the cherry we need. That's right.
2: Uh, Zara, or I'm sorry, Zadar.
1: Also Zara for some reason. Is that what, the, the Italians call it Zara or something? Or?
2: Yes, they did. Well, let me, let Is me. Is there a
1: Zara in Zadar? If I wanted to kind of a slim fit corduroy jacket, <laughs> could I go uh, to the
2: Zara Zara? I can't, I can't get clothes at Zara because when, a jacket is like labeled extra large at Zara. <laughs> it feels like it's, it's alternate universe extra large. It's like being the sweetest sour cherry. It's it the, really is. It's the largest, uh, you know, man in Milan or something. Right, if you, are, if you are five foot nine and weigh 165 pounds, you are an extra large at Zara. Uh, the Zadar, here's, here, let me give you a brief taste of, of Zadar. And, uh, and how coveted it was, I think perhaps partly because of its delicious cherries. In, uh, in about 1000, uh, Zara was captured by Venice. And as we've seen in prior episodes, Venice spent a thousand years as its own nation state. And often a feared naval power. A fear, feared naval power. So Venice during this period period, was one of the great cities of the world. And it took, and, and Zadar is sort of right across the Adriatic. So Venice captured it in, in about 1,000.
1: It's funny, because now it's a little dinky tourist site, and being captured by Venice would be like being
2: taken prisoner by Squaw Valley or right.
1: something. <laughs> Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> Nowadays, Look out, right. it's Fort
2: Lauderdale. But back then, they were a real death star. Uh, in about, well, no, in, in exactly um, 1186, the King of Hungary Kind of in a in a moment of like uh, big shouldered assertion of power in this area, it kind of took over Zadar. But by twelve o two, Venice returned in the form of no less than the Fourth Crusade.
1: Ah, previously seen on the Omnibus.
2: So in the in the Fourth Crusade, which we've covered on the Omnibus, uh, Venice, as part of their weird trickery with the Crusaders, not quite providing as many ships. And then instead of making it all the way to Constantinople, stopping on the Croatian coast for a year. Do you remember that whole side? Or
1: who knew there was going to be a spinoff to that entry about uh, cocktail garnishes?
2: That's right. It was Zadar that they that that maybe was Venice's real ambition.
1: They just wanted those sweet sweet sour cherries. They love the sweet sweet taste. Uh,
2: then in uh, 1358, Hungary took back Zadar. There was a lot of contention between Hungary and Venice. It's the Poland of uh, Southeast Europe, and you wouldn't think, right, because Hungary is not a seafaring nation, but they they were a land invasion nation. So it was, yeah, Venice was coming from the ocean, and and Hungary is coming from the back. You just can't win. Uh, and then in fourteen oh nine. Zadar was sold to the Venetians by the Hungarians. So now it was let, let's let's stop pretending. So
1: this is the let's not have the
2: civil war, let's just pay off all the slave owners. Yeah, this is this is our mail order bribe. I'll write you a check. And I think in 1409 is when they start when the Venetians started to call it Tsar rather than Zadar, which persisted for several hundred years. Um by the 16th century, the the Turks had come into the Balkans and were um, you know, were the great threat to European culture. And had sort of um, had invaded most of the uh, the Balkans, but uh, Zara remained a little outpost it's of a, European civilization, an island of light and civilization it, against it was the dark forces of the East, surrounded on all sides. And during that period, then uh, Venice really like poured a lot of energy into it as a kind of uh, you know an island, a, a West Berlin. And uh, and it it became like a really flourishing little town. So during the during the era, then when Venice has made this a, uh, a like a cultural sort of capital of the, the of the Adriatic and of European culture, surrounded by Turks, a man by the name of Francesco Drioli, an Italian, apparently, uh, started distilling Marschino liqueur. Out of the Morosca cherry, which was, you know, their, which was the sort of famous cherry of Zadar.
1: And obviously our word maraschino comes from Morosco,
2: Comes from Morosco. In fact,
1: do you know if you look it up in the dictionary, Webster still prefers you say maraschino.
2: Maraschino cherry. with With the hard C. Do you hear anybody saying Maraschino? No, but it's the type of thing someone will yell at us on the internet about. It seems old-timey. It's pronounced Maraschino. It
1: does seem like somebody would say it. Maraschino singing through a megaphone at you or a traveling salesman on a train would want another Maraschino cherry in in his Manhattan. But I don't hear anyone saying it.
2: No, Maraschino is not how we
1: say it. The root word is, uh, is, is bitter, right? Amaro is Italian for
2: bitter. Right. And we see that a lot, you know, amaretto, again, is yeah. sort of bitter liqueur. Yeah. So uh, amaro and marosca, these are all words dating back to the, when the Romans sort of preferred these cherries as a delicacy or as an ingredient, mm-hmm. really. Um, and so maraschino is, what would you say? The, it would, it's uh, the little bitter wine. Little, let you,
1: yeah, Eno is would be the diminutive, there. right? Yeah.
2: So this wine became extremely popular, and part of it was that the the that there was a kind of scarcity, right? That Marasca cherries grown within this Zadar little basin of of uh, agricultural perfection, they were they were a limited uh, resource, and so Maraschino became a kind of uh, a symbol of your, this- Your seal of quality. Yeah. And whatever you would maybe describe as this, this flourishing Renaissance of Zadar or Zara and the, and the culture of the Adriatic. You see this in food a lot where, you know, and
1: legislators will enshrine it into law that you cannot call this food, this, unless it comes from within 20 miles of this courthouse or whatever. I think it's true of, uh, like there's ongoing battles about Parmesan cheese, for example, whereas like in the EU, Parmesan cheese has to come from Parma, whereas we're not so strict about that here, but it happens with wine grapes and
2: yeah, I guess in this case. Famously cherries. champagne. Champagne,
1: right, it has to come from the champagne region or it's just sparkling wine.
2: And this is very true of, of uh, maraschino in its time. and but it's
1: It can't be true today, right? The jar of maraschino cherries in my fridge are not all from... The
2: Balkans. Well, it's gone through uh, several iterations of exactly what you're talking about during the during this sort of uh, 18th 19th century. Uh, there were a lot of restrictions. You could not call anything a maraschino, and there were there were uh, forgeries of it. It it became very popular, such that it became a joke almost that maraschino. Uh, is popular in the four corners of the world, and also grown in the four corners of the world. Counterfeiting, but cherry the, counterfeiting. The real, uh, the real maraschino was a um, was a delicacy and became a kind of symbol of tremendous wealth. So that Francesco Drioli got royal warrants from the the King of Italy and the King of. Austria and the British. It, it was extremely popular in the in Britain. We're talking
1: about a liqueur here, right? Not the not the candied cherries specifically.
2: No, 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 no. The the liqueur made from the cherries. Uh-huh. So maraschino. They they they. It was packaged in a very specific sort of Venetian glass bottle, a green square bottle. Uh, the Venetians used that sort of um, net, uh, kind of grass woven net around the bottle that you see in, in uh, red wine in an Italian restaurant. They don't have those here anymore, right? But it was, you know, it, that was originally designed to transport bottles. It was a kind of cushion, Just right? To keep a, them from breaking next to, keep, to each other. Yeah, so so that had a, that was part of the look of these maraschino bottles. It was, it continued to be a delicacy all the way into the the mid-19th century. And it was also, part of the delicacy was that Zara was surrounded by the Turks. This was, this was a, a a romantic place to go for people on their grand tour. This was a like a, it was regarded as, and because I'm it's sure such it's, an old city, is it a
1: picturesque walled city? Extremely, yeah, yeah,
2: and so it was. It was a it was a stop off on your way to to sketch the pyramids in Egypt that you would stop at Zara. In I'm fact,
1: lo- I'm looking at photos, and it's very nice. It's do, do they shoot Game of Thrones here?
2: No, no, no. That's no. all in Italy. I'm sorry, Ireland.
1: Well, it's in Italy and Ireland. I think the Mediterranean stuff's like Malta now or something, yeah. but it but it really has that kind of King's Landing vibe.
2: Yeah, it's it's beautiful and it was it was uh it was well, we've demonstrated hotly contested for centuries because everyone wants to be there. But bombed in bombed in uh, in World War II pretty considerably. Uh in in the uh, in the Victorian era, no less a person than the future King of England, George V, went to Zara and bought a whole bunch of maraschino for for his court. And by this point in time, the maraschino cherry, which was this, the cherry from which you made the wine, mm-hmm. now kind of brined in the wine and used as a dessert cherry. Because
1: sometimes you'll buy, you'll get one of these fruit flavored brandies and it will have some of the fruit like floating in it like as a, I don't know, what seal of quality or a decoration or it's not even a garnish really. You don't want it in your glass.
2: Yeah, it's a it's uh, it's more like the worm in the bottom of the tequila bottle. Yes. But but they, but they would sell the cherries on their own. The cherries like became a delicacy of their own kind of pickled in a in a bottle. And those cherries became very popular in the United States as a a condiment, right? Or as a as a decorative Is, is
1: it like a chutney or something? Like what, what what do you think you would put these on? No, they were whole
2: cherries. I mean you would just pop one in your mouth. You'd pop one in your mouth or you'd put it on, uh, I don't know, ham. I mean, you know, there are a lot of things where a little, where a little uh, liqueur fruit would find its way into, into a preparation.
0: Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Yousician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24/7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musicians' award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy, so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musicians' Premium Plus package at musician.com/slash start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com slash start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n dot com slash start so and
1: what do you think what era do you think we're talking about here because i guess my familiarity with maraschino cherries is any kind of signifier or kind of post-war america uh, kind of this uh, gracious living, good housekeeping kind of thing, where you know housewives are making, you know, putting like you say, pineapple and cherries on hams, and uh, you know they want fun garnishes in their jello salad, and you know all these kind of new quick kicky recipes. Were by this time what were what were maraschino cherries? Because our current maraschino are not brined in liqueur, right?
2: Well, they've gone through several iterations. So in, in nineteen in nineteen twelve, the question of what constituted a maraschino cherry became an issue in the United States because they were they were a popular delicacy, so much so that it's an easy thing to duplicate. You can counterfeit a maraschino cherry. And there and American growers were producing lots and lots of different kinds of, of brine cherries and calling them maraschinos. So, um, in 1912, the Food and Drug Administration of its time passed the Food Inspection Decision Number 141, which stipulated that a maraschino cherry could only be a marasca cherry preserved in maraschino wine from Zadar. It had to be from there. It had to be. So you could, anything else was called an imitation maraschino cherry by food labeling laws at the time. And then in 1920, we had prohibition. So all of a sudden you could not have Marasca cherries brined in maraschino wine. During this period, a a professor at Ohio State by the name of Ernest Vigand was working on other methods of brining cherries other than in alcohol. Not because he was a uh, teetotal, he was, he'd been working on this before prohibition, but just that alcohol had a tendency to soften the cherry and make it, you know, lose its cherry snap. This is back when
1: universities had big food science departments dedicated to stuff like brining a better
2: cherry. Right. And so he was working up these concoctions of sulfur dioxide, what we would call sulfides. mm mm-hmm. Um and calcium chloride, which is sort of a, a preservative, you know, it's de-icing stuff basically that we use on the streets. So it's very caustic stuff. <laughs> yeah, sulfur dioxide being basically sulfuric acid. I guess
1: I I eat corn nuts and that's just corn in lye, right? Yeah. That's that's how you make hominy. You find the most caustic thing you can and see what, how it bleaches the hell out of your fruit or vegetable, and then
2: you start from there. And then kind of reduce it until it's less it, until the toxicity is uh is Foodable, and that's what he's doing. And you know, maraschino, marasca cherries are very dark. They're you know very small, very black little cherries. So the original maraschino cherries were were little black cherries. But the American method of it started to use lighter and lighter cherries. So uh, American growers sort of preferred the Montmorency cherry, okay, which is a much lighter colored cherry. You know that that in its natural state was a pretty light red. Well, the, it,
1: the color of our, the bright red of our Maritino cherries today is just delivered by chemical dyes, It's, it's right? completely chemical. So I the, assume that that cherry is very light before it gets...
2: What happens to the Montmorency cherry is that when you, when you put it in any kind of solution, it turns to that kind of gray, you know, that sort of rotting fruit gray. Yeah. Uh, which wasn't very appealing. And, and so the combination of sulfur dioxide, which is sort of a bleaching agent as much as anything, mm-hmm. and the calcium chloride... Preserving its its snappy integrity, then offered the opportunity to create like a uh, a, a sugar syrup and a and an and an enticing color. So,
1: so you've you've taken everything out of the cherry that was cherry, and then you're adding your own kind of fake sweetness and color via the sugar syrup and the dye to kind of put the cherry back into it.
2: Right, and and uh, and at this point. We are still using red dye number four, which we talk about, uh, these days as a, I mean, futurelings won't probably still have this in their collective memory, but when we say red dye number four, it's a shorthand for saying a food additive or colorant that is poison. It was banned by the government. People are not going to remember how controversial red dye was. Red dye number four. We, there are so many, uh, instances in our food where we want the food to be red or redder than it is so that red dye as a food colorant is super important to the mass production of food in our culture. Can you suggest why that would be? Why red dye is so much more important than, I guess, yellow or blue dye? I guess we want our food to be red, don't we?
1: I mean, the problem with blue is there's nothing blue in nature, so you're not expecting to eat blue we'll eat food. berries. But... Yeah, I assume it gets mixed with other stuff too. Yeah. Like you, you buy things and it, on the side it'll say this has red number three, yellow number five. You know,
2: it's one of the primaries. So anytime you want any kind of warm coloring in your food, you're going to need a red dye. The journey of red dye number four is is interesting enough that it could absolutely be its own entry in the omnibus.
1: That's why there were no red M and M's. For that's why we had tan M and M's when I was a child for a sad decade.
2: Well, red dye number four, as you say, was banned and was banned a long time before that in the, um, the mid part of the century. Oh, in, I guess it was red number two that
1: was the 70s era one. Red right? number
2: one and two and three were all also banned. Oh. What, what, we use, <laughs> what we use now in food is something called red 40, which is... <laughs> 39, <laughs> there have been 39 <laughs> attempts that they all still keep killing babies. So. And red 40 has been determined by, the, by EU and American standards to be a consumable red dye. Finally. Not one that's creating monsters in our kids. After the repeal of Prohibition, there actually was a lobby called the Non-Alcoholic Preserved Cherry Industry that lobbied oh, yeah, the, the
1: NAPCI. Government. Yeah, <laughs> I love
2: I love NAPCI. They did great work. Lobbied the government to repeal their former definition of a maraschino maraschino cherry as a marasca cherry preserved in maraschino.
1: And of course, this would lead to more domestic production. So it's a it's a strong lobbying arm.
2: Right. So in 1939, the Food and Drug Administration came out with a new standard of identity, which was, you know, a cherry preserved. Any kind of preserved cherry. And red.
1: Go nuts. And with sugar, you know, like. We, we took the briefcase of money from Napsey.
2: <laughs> maraschino cherry can be anything you want. So by 1965, it had been figured out that although red dye number four was a poison and we weren't going to use it, by 65, there were so many maraschino cherries used across the industry, uh, the maraschino cherry community, let's say the lobbying group of maraschino cherries convinced the government that they were decorative rather than, than food items. What? And so the federal government made a one instance exception in the use of red dye number four you could use it to make maraschino cherries because they weren't food. they
1: were. But they had to know people were plopping them in, in cocktails
2: and ice cream bowls. Well, but we weren't apparently meant to eat them. Wow. And so from 1965 to 1976, an entire decade, including up to almost when I ate my 15 maraschino cherries as part of my pig's trough, they had red dye number four in them. And then in seventy six, finally the, the game was up and do they banned red four, even in Maraschino chair. Do you feel
1: like this explains a lot about you? Do you still have blind spots in your vision or hairless patches on your head that you owe to your fifteen little packets of banned red dye?
2: I really do. I feel like the I feel red dye number four, MSG and uh, DDT <laughs> are the three are the three chemicals that make up, you know, all of my connective tissue. What happened at the end of World War II, of course, was that all the Italians in Dalmatia were expelled by the Croats as they took over, you know, as they reestablished sort of a Yugoslav ownership of that territory.
1: Which is kind of a made up pan-Balkan state trying to balance all these local groups,
2: Serbs and Croats and whatnot, but not Italians apparently, they're out. No, they're out. And so in 1947 with the establishment of Croatia, the uh the families that had made Maraschino for all these many years, obviously the Driolis and a couple of other families, the Luxardos and the Vlahovs, who were the three main families controlling the sort of Maraschino wine community, they were all booted and had to decamp to Italy and build their empires again. And did Tito seize their assets? Did he
1: did the did the workers seize the cherry orchards?
2: They did and began making a, uh, a maraschino wine under the name marasca, but now not marasca with a C, but marasca with a, a suitably Slavic K, K. Maraska, which remains, a, a, which throughout the Eastern Bloc and and now in peacetime, or at, I guess a post-dissolution of the Soviets, um, it remains a very popular European maraschino, but the Italian families that went back to Italy, we mentioned already that the Luxardos, they're one of the largest European makers of liqueur. Uh, they moved to Padua and started cultivating these cherries in, in new vineyards. Uh, the, the So are there Padovino cherries now? Or well, they, they no, still they're, they're still called Moroscos, I guess. Uh, the Dariolis moved their distillery to Italy and continue. And, you know, and unfortunately it got, the the patriarch died and the company got sold Mm. and they quit producing maraschino in 1980. And then during the, during the dissolution of Yugoslavia, the Serbs actually made their like big push to capture Zadar and integrate it into what would have been greater Serbia and were repelled. So it remains. Yeah. Yeah. It remains, uh, now, like a, it's a major tourist destination, the second largest city in Croatia, Zadar, been continues to be like a, a very like lucrative and popular cherry wine growing region.
1: I feel like maraschino cherries, the product, like our weird mid-century American version of them, like really changed what people thought cherries were. Maybe this, maybe this is just me, but like growing up in a house that did not have a lot of like junk food around to eat. Like the foods, the sweet food we could sneak from the kitchen was pretty limited. So if my mom left a bag of chocolate chips open, you know, we would just- Grab a handful. Grab a handful of chocolate chips because there wasn't candy or cookies sitting around. And if there was a jar of maraschino cherries in the fridge, we would just pop a maraschino cherry. And my kids do the same thing. They will totally snag maraschino cherries from the fridge. But maraschino cherries, the flavor is not cherry at all. Everything cherry about them has been bleached out. So they've put, you know, whatever, some different kinds of fruit flavorings or maybe almond extract- into them, so the the taste they have is some wholly artificial taste. But that's the taste that I now associate with
2: with cherries. Uh, Almond extract has has played a role in the flavoring of maraschino cherries since the twenties. Yeah, that was one of the that was one of the earnest, uh Viglans or vegans tastes that he added to the mix.
1: Uh, so yeah, being so like. Today, even today, cherry ice cream often has kind of an almondy taste because I think Americans want cherries to taste like artificial maraschino cherries, which if you of get, course were.
2: If you get uh, cherry Garcia ice cream, it does have like this like hard bits of little maraschinos. My daughter and I fight over the cherries on top of our sundays, even though neither of us really likes them. Yeah, it's
1: the false scarcity. If if there was one of something else, I'm sure I could get my kids to fight over whatever the one thing was, even if it was a Brussels sprout. Right,
2: a dog biscuit or something. One of my my longest friendships, my friendship with John Hodgman, began over a decade ago when he invited me to his house for dinner for the first time. And I didn't really know him, but we had met at some event and he was like, come to my house. And then he said, and bring a jar of maraschino cherry.
1: Were you wondering what kind of weird sex thing you were getting Well, I
2: wasn't, I was at an absolute loss. Where does one get a jar of maraschino cherries? And I was in New York and I went on this sort of adventure. How do I find maraschinos? And then it's like, I'm going to this person's house for dinner. I should bring good maraschino cherries. I don't want to just get gas station maraschino (laughs) cherries. So I went on a, you know, I went on an adventure. I finally ended up at a liquor store. I found some nice maraschinos. I brought them with me to dinner, you know, you arrive and you're not supposed to come empty handed. It's a weird hostess gift. Here I was, okay. I, was like, I brought you the maraschinos. At which point he revealed that it was just a, just a gag, just a <laughs> test. Like I didn't need them. I just felt like you should have a mission. <laughs> and so the maraschino cherries, the jar of them went up on the shelf where they remain to this day. Uh, he just keeps them there in the kitchen like a, a symbol of friendship. A symbol of friendship, <laughs> now over a decade old.
1: And that concludes Maraschino Cherries, entry 758.PR0819, certificate number 28197, in the omnibus. Futurelings, if scarcity is indeed the only sign of quality, the ultimate creator of what we perceive as prestige or quality, mm, then, quality, then stay far away from social media, which is all about quantity, an avalanche of content. Uh, but the, marriage, the cherry on top of all of this is, was, in our day, the Omnibus Project social presence, which was at Omnibus Project at all, on all social media platforms. I was at Ken Jennings on Twitter. John was at John Roderick on Twitter, and Instagram visit him but make sure you bring a jar of maraschino cherries Mm -hmm. Uh, if you want to complain about how we did not say maraschino cherries enough or maybe you're still mad about how John said Lily Pulitzer's name Mm. uh, we have a place to complain about that it's the Futurelings Facebook group uh, a delightful place to spend time with others who enjoy the omnibus and its uh, educational aims you can. Uh, we were available to electronic mail communication, uh, as it was called.
2: People, electronic mail communication, as it was called. People could uh, write,
1: in quotes, to us at the Omnibus at gmail.com. If you actually wanted to write, either cursive or manuscript, you could send those notes uh, or whatever uh, items you thought we needed to see uh, to the Omnibus Project, PO Box five five seven four four. Shoreline, Washington, 98155.
2: Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, when people still consumed chemicals instead of natural, wholesome raw foods, when we still drank alcohol... When we still drank big jars of red dye number four. Rather than pure distilled water, when people still worried about our precious bodily fluids being tapped and sapped... Back before we were denying them our essence... All of these things are emblems of a civilization in decline, kind of like Venice in the 18th century. We're
1: going to be a gondola-based economy before you can shake a stick
2: at it. We have no idea how long this decrepit, limping civilization survived. We hope and pray that this catastrophe doesn't come any really soon because I'm kind of engaged in a real estate transaction right now that I'd like to have. So I'd like to see the completion.
1: You would like the the meteor showers to start raining down the day after your house closes.
2: Some ki- some kind of situation where if I'm going to get paid, I'd like to get paid. I'd like to at least die with the with the bucket of money in my hands rather than with it outstanding.
1: But we know you won't cash the check. You'll just keep the check in your bankbook for yeah, years. I'll just sit and on hope it. somebody takes you out for ice cream.
2: But don't give me a giant Sunday of meteors. I want my money. Uh, if the worst comes soon, if the blood wave sweeps all our efforts away. If the the blood wave is what colors our cherries, (laughs) this recording, like all the recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry
0: in the Omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.